0: Well, the word God has for us today is from the Gospel of Luke, the 8th chapter, verses 4 through 10. Listen now for God's word to you today. When a large crowd was gathering as people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on a path and was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and as it grew up, it withered for lack of moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew with it and choked it. Some fell into good soil, and when it grew, it produced a hundredfold. As he said this, he called out, If you have ears to hear, then hear. And then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others, I speak in parables, so that looking they may not perceive and hearing they may not understand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to really understand and perceive your word, your world this day as best we can, wherever we are, wherever we're coming from, be with us right now. Be our vision, in Jesus' name, amen. So, (laughs) have you ever had a hard time understanding something that came across in the Bible? I have, I have like what I just read. <laughs> it comes at the end of what's called the parable of the sower, which appears, really well-known story, appears in three of the four Gospels, and it's, it's really the first of the parables that Jesus tells, the first in a whole series of parables about what he calls the kingdom of God. So it's sort of an introduction to all of those other parables, and you might think of the parable of the sower as a parable about parables, about what they're for, what their intention is, and what they do to us. So, of course, we think of a parable basically as a relatively simple story, you know, with events and people and characters taken from everyday events that are intended to teach us some sort of a moral or a spiritual lesson, and that's what the, this parable does too. This sower or farmer sows that is he goes out and he scatters seeds all over his field and some falls on good soil and some falls on bad soil and the seed on good soil yields well and the seed that falls on bad soil doesn't and that's basically it that's basically what jesus is saying here and you you can imagine when his disciples hear that they You can imagine them saying something like duh (laughs) i mean jesus that's kind of simple isn't it i mean why are you teaching us in parables and he answers in one of the most bizarre verses in the entire bible he says to you disciples has been given the secrets of the kingdom of god but to others To the crowd he's been speaking to, I speak in parables so that, looking, they may not perceive, and listening, they may not understand. Now, I have taught a few classes in my lifetime, and I can tell you that intentionally trying not to be understood is not the most effective way to get your point across. So why on earth is Jesus doing this? Well, as it turns out, his supposedly enlightened disciples really don't have much of a clue what he's talking about either. So he goes on and he interprets the parable for them. I didn't read that part, but he he says that the seed, the seed that the sower is casting into the field, the seed is the word of God. And the soil, where it lands is the soul of the one who hears it. The sower is God, who is out there in the world casting the seeds of the word all the time. The word is the good news about the kingdom of God. Jesus talks a whole lot about the kingdom of God in all the gospels, or the first three at least, but a really good definition that sort of ties it all together about what the kingdom of God is comes from the Christian uh, philosopher Dallas Willard who said that the kingdom is where what God wants done gets done. The kingdom is where what God wants done gets done. Now does that happen all the time in this world? No. But wherever it does happen, that's where the kingdom is. It's where the God of love reigns supreme and where the love of God flows freely in every relationship. Jesus says that the kingdom is already starting to take root right now on this earth as it is in heaven and at some point in the future it's going to come to full fruition and all of creation will be refreshed and all people will flourish together in peace and love and joy. That's That's the good news of the word. That's the seed that the sower in the parable is casting. The word of God. It's the good news. God casts it as widely as possible. On fields, on rocks, on paths, under bushes, even among thorns. The seed goes everywhere. Falls on good soil, falls on bad soil touches the minds and hearts and souls of people in all sorts of different circumstances in life. And it's not just a one-time thing either, as if, you know, God only scatters seeds once and your soul had better be ready for it. God sows graciously, extravagantly, all the time. It's just that we aren't always receptive. And even when we are, it can take a really long time for one of those seeds to bear fruit so what does it take for the seed of god's word to penetrate the soil of our souls well oddly enough here's where it's helpful to know something about agricultural practices in first century palestine i bet you weren't expecting to have a lesson on that today but here it goes In a really dry climate, 2,000 years ago, really rocky, hard ground, it's hard to get seeds to sink into any kind of soil, to sink and to sprout. So what farmers did in Jesus' day is they would scatter the seeds everywhere, widely all over the place, like the sower does in the parable. But they didn't stop there because what they would do then is they would take a stick and they would plow the soil over, seeds and all. So the seed is just sitting on the soil, they would plow it over, and seed would get turned in that process. So only the seeds that get plowed over can take root and grow. And that's how it is in some ways with our souls too. Only a soul that has been plowed or turned over can receive the good news of the kingdom of God and bear fruit. And that is why Jesus teaches in parables. He told seemingly simple stories to a crowd of mainly Jewish peasants using characters and situations taken from their everyday lives. And they assumed, when they heard the story at first, they assumed they got the point. They assumed they knew exactly where the story was going because they'd been taught for generations that following the rules of the Torah and their traditions was the one true path in life. There was nothing new under the sun. But then Jesus comes along and he throws in an unexpected twist, a wrinkle into their understanding of how the world works. Like in Luke 10, Luke 10 where we Hear that the hero of the parable, the hero of the story, is a Samaritan, of all people, who is someone that any Jew living at that time was taught to despise as among the worst people in the world, Samaritans. Whoever heard of a good Samaritan? Or in Luke 14, where a man invites all these respectable friends that he has over to a great feast and they all make excuses for why they can't show up. So he sends out his servant into the streets and he invites all the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame to come to his table for the great feast. And they all come and there's still plenty of room left over at his table. Or Luke 15, where a father welcomes his no-good prodigal son back home with open arms and celebrates with everything he has that the son has returned or luke 16 where an employee cheats his boss and jesus praises him for it or luke 18 where a widow only gets what she wants and she deserves it by pestering a judge constantly 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 until he gives in out of frustration And on and on and on it goes in these parables. None of the parables of the kingdom of God made any sense to people who first heard them 2,000 years ago. But Jesus told them anyway. Because he was plowing the soil of their souls. He was turning over whatever expectations had long been planted there. He was plowing the soil of their souls. The biblical scholar John Dominic Crossan writes that Jesus' parables undercut our expectations and upset accepted norms. And in so doing, they undermine the credibility of one way of seeing the world, the old familiar way, in order to ask us to consider abandoning it for another way of looking at the world. And then he Cross and writes this the parables of jesus kick us in the rear when we aren't looking i really like that that's the purpose of jesus's parables to plow us over the only problem you know for people like you and me living today is that we have heard these parables many of us so many times over and over again i mean How many of you even remember that the Good Samaritan in the parable, we assume Good Samaritan is a great term of endearment these days. 2,000 years ago, it was unfathomable. So these parables have become so familiar to us these days that a lot of them have lost their power to plow over our understanding of the world and open us up to new ways of seeing and hearing and being. You know, as, as, as I said, and as is kind of obvious, um, I wasn't expecting to preach this morning until a couple days ago. But following up on the theme that we've had the last uh, few weeks of clergy sharing some of our stories, I want to tell you about one way that God plowed the soil of my own soul. I was... Uh, Twenty-five years old. Just finishing my first year of graduate school at uh, UC San Diego, I was pursuing a PhD in sociology. That's where I met my wife, Margaret, who uh, had no idea I was ever going to become a pastor in my life, but that's another story. My primary area of study at the time uh, was the Soviet Union, Soviet Society, and so I traveled there quite a few times back in the 80s to Russia and Ukraine and Armenia and Georgia and Azerbaijan and and no I was not a spy although if I was I don't think I would be telling you right now but anyway (laughs) Cal's over here somewhere right who studied Russian at the time too and like him I was actually recruited by the National Security Agency because I studied Russian and Soviet culture but that's a story for another day the other focus of my studies at the time was the sociology of religion so you might say that uh, well if you remember a few weeks ago when I preached a sermon uh, about when I was in high school I had a very close feeling of connection to God and Jesus and the church just really overpowering well by the time I was 25 a lot of that had faded away Although my interest in religion never left me, and and actually my personal faith never left me, just my connection or affiliation with any organized religion. And then one day I was in a bookstore, which is where graduate students spend a lot of our time, and I came across a book I had vaguely heard of. Not even sure how. It was published in 1948, and it's called The Seven-Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. Some of you have heard of Thomas Merton, I'm sure. I bought that book on a whim, and then I started to read it, and I couldn't put it down. I devoured it, all 496 pages. It's Merton's memoir that he wrote at the age of about 30, about a time when he was younger, um, when he was in his early 20s. And it's a a time in his life where he figured, like a lot of us perhaps did, that we have the whole direction of our future life figured out. He was enjoying a sort of bohemian lifestyle as an intellectual prodigy in New York City. He attended Columbia, and he was a journalist and a professor and all this kind of stuff. Everything seemed pretty clear to him. But then through a whole series of unlikely events and, and deep reflection, he begins to perceive a calling from God. The first part is what takes him from being a real secular, uh, you're sort of uh, enjoying life however he wants to. The first leads him to consider becoming a Catholic. So he becomes a Catholic. And then... God leads him to become consider becoming a priest. And then, believe it or not, he finally decides to renounce everything he knew about his life at that time. And he, he follows his call to become a, an isolated Trappist monk. That's a truly a, a, a wonderful book. And for you younger people, especially, but anybody, I really strongly recommend it. It's, it's a wise book written by somebody who was really pretty young at the time. Now, in his later years, Merton called the book an immature reflection of his ideas, like a lot of us do when we think back to our 20s. And that may be. But I gotta tell you, it had a huge impact on me. Huge. And yesterday, as I was thinking about what I was gonna talk about here today, I went back to that book, and I was looking at some places that I'd underlined, in it years ago that really touched me back then. So let me read you a couple of passages. And by the way, uh, maybe some of you picked up a piece of paper that was available with the bulletin. All the quotes that I'm gonna read are also on this piece of paper, so you can pick it up as you leave the sanctuary. Anyway, Merton writes this. The logic of worldly success rests on a fallacy. The strange error that our perfection depends on the thoughts and opinions and applause of other people. A weird life it is, indeed, to be living always in somebody else's imagination. As if that were the only place in which one could at last become real. That's powerful stuff. Later on in his career, Merton became especially well-known in his later writings, for this distinction he makes between the the true self and the false self. What's false is that ego-driven part of us that is shaped by our constant striving to win approval from other people in order to give our lives a sense of purpose and meaning. It's a huge part, that false self, identifying with it, of what makes the soil of our souls barren unreceptive to the seeds of God's mercy and God's grace. Only the true self can do that, can be receptive, the interior quiet part of us that is authentic and humble and open to the spirit. And another part of the book that really spoke to me is this. We live in a society whose whole policy is to excite every nerve in the human body and keep it at the highest pitch of artificial tension. To strain every human desire to the limit and to create as many new desires and synthetic passions as possible in order to cater to them with the products of our factories and printing presses and movie studios and all the rest. He wrote that in 1948. What would he think now? It's about the best diagnosis I have ever come across of the impact that all the distractions that we face in life and and that we intentionally seek out, all those distractions, which is another reason why the soil of our souls can be barren and the seeds of God's word can't penetrate. Finally, Merton writes this, We cannot arrive at the perfect possession of God in this life. And that is why we are traveling and in darkness. But we already possess God by grace. And therefore, in that sense, we have already arrived and are dwelling in the light. But, oh, how far have I to go to find you, In whom I have already arrived see that's the paradox of Christian faith in a nutshell right there that we are already reconciled and loved and possessed and set free by God to be the person we were meant to be through Jesus Christ but there are still so many things that hold us back from experiencing that blessing in our everyday lives So, looking back on my own life, the seven-story mountain by Thomas Merton spoke directly to my own life where I was living right in the moment in my mid-20s. still does. In fact, I'd say that just as in one of Jesus' parables, God used Merton's story to plow the soil of my soul to kick me in the rear, and to make me into the person I am today. Well, a few years later, after a few more twists and turns in life, I decided to drop the purely academic study of religion and to embrace my own religion, my own faith. And so I went to seminary, and here I am today. You know, in another book that came out a few years after the seven-story mountain called New Seeds of Contemplation, Merton reflects on the parable of the sower. And he writes, every moment and every event in a person's life on earth plants something in their souls. For just as the wind carries thousands of winged seeds, so each moment brings with it Germs of spiritual vitality that come to rest imperceptibly in the minds and wills of people. We often think this applies only to the word of the gospel as preached in churches on Sundays. But every expression of the will of God is in some sense a word of God and therefore a seed of new life. In all the situations of life, the will of God comes to us not as an external dictate, but above all, as an interior invitation and response of personal love. So this morning, I invite you to think about your own life, your own story, How has the seed of God, God's word, penetrated your soul, your mind, your heart, your experiences? How have you experienced an inner sense of God's profound love for you as a person? Maybe it's been a really long time since you felt anything like that. Or maybe you've never been quite sure how you feel in connection to God or love or Jesus or anything else and let me tell you that's that's okay That's okay it's normal for the spiritual life to ebb and flow we all go through dry patches sometimes even bone dry and you may start to wonder if it'll ever come back or if it was real in the first place a sense of peace, a sense of purpose, a sense of power, the acceptance that you are accepted by the love of God. But Jesus promises that God the sower is never going to stop casting the seeds of grace into your life and into mine. The thing for us to do as best we can is to pay attention and to listen to perceive as best we can and know that even now god is planting seeds of love and mercy and peace may take some time for all that to grow but they will and they will bear fruit in abundance in your life and in mine in jesus name amen Well, I'm going to invite uh, Krista up to sing the offertory, and I'll invite the ushers up now to receive the offering. uh, As we respond to all that God has given us, the grace, the mercy, the seed of love, let us respond graciously and generously ourselves.